Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church Podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. Who here has ever peered through a keyhole? When we first moved to Cumberland, 1980, we lived in an old farmhouse that was so old that when it was built, it did not have a bathroom. Now, when we moved in, the bathroom had been added, but the only place to add it was right above the front porch. And so there was one beam that held that bathroom up over the front porch, and when the wind would blow, the bathroom would move, that whole part of the building. In fact, um, that house no longer stands. It was torn out a long time ago. But in that old farmhouse were these big keyholes, and there were big keys that fit in those big keyholes. And if the door was locked, you could get down on your knees. And of course, when I was a kid, I didn't have to get down very far to look through those keyholes. And of course, if you've ever done that, if you ever look through one of those old doors with one of those big old keyholes, you'll know that you can get a glimpse, just a fraction of what is on the other side of that door. And maybe you got uh, a view of a window or uh, maybe you could even see, uh, depending on the angle, maybe you could see something, a chair or, or maybe even a TV. But you couldn't see very much, just a just a small fraction of the mystery. And when you're a kid, everything's a mystery, right? The mystery of what lies beyond the door. Today, we're going to get to look through the keyhole of Revelation chapter four and get just a glimpse of one room in the palace of the king of kings in the kingdom that is above all kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven. And we get just a glimpse of the world that awaits us if we know Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to peer through the keyhole of heaven's door to heaven's throne. Now, before we dive through the keyhole, because the door for us is not yet opened, let me remind you what we've seen so far in this book. The theme of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus. This book is given to us. Yes, there are many, many things that occur on earth in the future, and this is a futurist book. We reject any notion that this is just historic, that this is just allegoric, although there are allegories and metaphors and symbols used. Of course, we'll look at some of that even today. 
We've seen that repeatedly in chapters 2 and 3. But the message is about Jesus Christ. We come to this book not just to know what happens, what lies ahead, but to learn more about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what He is going to do and what He will accomplish in the future. But the purpose is, remember, chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly or A better translation would be quickly, swiftly. When it happens, it's going to happen fast. Come to pass. These are future revelations. And so as we traveled through the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, we saw seven literal historic churches. We also saw them as symbolic churches of every church age. There have been these seven types of churches, but we also saw and Uh, put all the pieces together as many and as well as we could to show you that they are also prophetic, that they also demonstrate that God has laid out for us seven phases of this thing called the church age and that we are well into the final seventh and final stage. And in John chapter four, we're going to see what happens next after the church age we're going to see that although the church has been mentioned by name up to around give or, give or take 19 times in the first three chapters now the church will fade in at least by name in the book you're not going to find the word church in the book and when the church shows up again as a body it will be as the bride and really as the wife of christ in revelation chapter 19 now we'll talk about what we do see in chapter 4 and 5 here in just a few moments but let me remind you as we get ready to roll into chapter 4 the promise that was given to us in chapter 3 specifically to the church of philadelphia that they would be kept the true church and the true believers who are alive before the time of judgment will be, quote, kept, fr- kept, quote, from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the whole world. Chapter 3, verse 10. That Greek ek, two letters, but it means a lot more than two letters. It means out, from, and to. The church, we are told, will be taken out of and put somewhere else from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. We will not be anywhere in the world because the whole world is going to be not a safe space, but a judgment place. The whole world will be a place of judgment in the hour of trial. And so we will be taken out of and somewhere and brought to somewhere else before that. But what does God say to those who profess Jesus but do not yet possess Jesus? Well, in Chapter 3, verse 16, Christ says he will spit them out of his mouth. In chapter 3, verse 3, he says that he will surprise them and overtake them as a thief. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says to the false believers, they will be thrown into great tribulation. And ultimately, if they still do not repent... 
they will, chapter 2, verse 16, be slain by Christ Himself when He returns. One of the things that we will see as we go through this book is the repeated opportunities that are given to people even in the hour of trial to repent and to turn. And yet even after the removal of the bride of Christ from the hour of trial, even after the gears fall into place and the prophecies become unfolded literally, even after Elijah the prophet returns before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Jesus Himself said as He descended the Mount of Transfiguration that Elijah is coming. He says that He has come in John the Baptist, but that He still is coming. Malachi chapter 4 will be literally fulfilled. The two witnesses, one of which is almost certainly Elijah, who will testify the 144,000 missionaries that God will send around the world and will seal with His protection young Jewish men who will repent after the church has been removed and they see the prophecies in a new light and the veil that has been placed temporarily, a partial blinding of the nation has been removed. 144,000 of them will repent and trust in Jesus Christ and God will seal them as missionaries that He will send out around the world. And even then, many, many, most will not choose to repent. The problem is not a problem of God's grace or lack thereof. There is grace for all. The blood of Jesus has paid the sin debt for all mankind. Not for your sins only. Not for our sins only. But 1 John 2, 2, for the sins of the whole world. Jesus paid the sin debt of mankind. And even then, men will, by their own free will, free moral agency, they will choose to reject their Creator. Now, I want you to see in chapter 4, verse 1, that there is a change in what we're dealing with here. As John says, after this, after this, I looked, and behold, pay attention, this is significant. Whenever you see that word, behold, it means look at this, listen to this. A door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Again, let me repeat this book. Yes, it has historical elements. We see that in the seven churches. Yes, it has allegorical elements. We see that in the seven churches. But this is a futurist book. This is about things that have not taken place yet we are not living in the tribulation we are living in our tribulation paul says there are two tribulations there's the tribute first thessalonians there's the tribulation of the church that's what we're going through today but there is a coming tribulation that god is going to give to the world not to us we have not been appointed to wrath first thessalonians chapter five and so there is the unfolding and the laying out of the seven churches and then John says, after this, after the seven churches, I looked. And this voice says, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. After what? After the seven churches. And so we see 
heaven's door is opened. Heaven's door. This is the third door that has been revealed to us in the book of Revelation. Again, the first door was the door open to Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 8. The door of ministry, the door of evangelism. We are experiencing that today. We had not that, that many weeks ago, Dr. Vernon Brewer was here with us, sharing about the persecuted church. And again, if you were not here for that message, I encourage you to podcast that or get on Facebook, YouTube, watch that message. You will be challenged. Uh, you will be convicted about what our brothers and sisters are going through right now today in other parts of the world, many other parts of the world where they are not gathered in a temperature controlled room like we are with cushioned seats and they don't have parking spaces out there for them and they don't have uh, a, a nice sound system. They are huddled together in cold, damp rooms, darkness, some of them, because they're afraid of being found out and yet they are gathered at risk of their safety at risk, some of them their own life, to worship our Creator. We are experiencing an explosion in parts of the world of the church, even behind the Iron Curtain, even in places where uh, it is against uh, Islamic law to profess the name of Jesus Christ, and yet brothers and sisters who are willing to be martyred, the church is growing even there, just as Jesus promised it would. That is the first door. The second door, the door, though, that is closed. The closed door, not to heaven, but to the church of Laodicea. Many churches have closed their door to Jesus. Oh, they have him on the marquee. They talk about him, but the door for Jesus is closed because the Jesus they speak about and the Jesus they sing about is not the Jesus of the Bible. And on their, on their door, the knock of the Savior I stand at this door, Jesus said, and I knock. And you need to make an individual decision, a personal decision to come and answer the call to salvation, to repentance from sin, to trust in me, Jesus is saying, as your Savior, the only Savior God the Father has provided, the only way to heaven, the only way to forgiveness of sins, the only way to eternal life, is by admitting you need a Savior and that there is one Savior who died for you and rose again, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and He extends His grace to you, but you can only receive it by faith. And you can only receive it when you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And now this third door, which is today closed, but will be opened at the end of the church age. Notice that the voice that speaks to John is described as trumpet-like. This is not an incidental or accidental description. Because Paul said that when the Lord Himself descends from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, it will be with the trump of God. And when that happens, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be got up, caught up together in clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, and I will for the first time in my life not be late <laughs> when that trumpet is called and we all go up together. I told B Butch was in the a hospital yesterday. We're thankful that Butch is home now and, uh, um, and doing better than he was yesterday morning, but I, t I told Butch yesterday, well, I'm going to race you up and then I said, well, who am I kidding? I'm going to be late. 
But then the more I thought about it, I said, no, I'll be perfect then. I'll be perfect in that moment, so I won't be late anymore. Heaven's door will be open. The trumpet will sound. And the speaker commands John to be transported to heaven. And he promises John that he will now begin to reveal even more things about the future. And so again, we get to look now in, through the keyhole into the very throne room of heaven as the scene now will shift from heaven to earth and it's going to shift back again to the earth but now we are going excuse me from earth to heaven and John is immediately transported he says in the spirit verse 2 immediately I was in the spirit because only the spirit of God this is capital S spirit only the spirit of God can take John through time and space into the future to see in vision, to see in reality the things which must take place in the future. And what does John see? He sees verses 2 and 3, heaven's throne. Listen to this description of heaven's throne. And don't just read it, but ask the Holy Spirit to imprint this in your spirit and immediately I was in the spirit and behold another pay attention this is important this is something you need to focus on church a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an Emerald. Do you hear what he is describing here? He's saying, listen, what I saw was like when I tried to look at the throne and the one who sits on the throne, all I can describe to you is the glory that was emanating from the throne. I can't even describe to you. I, I could not even in that vision see the one himself who was on the throne. But I could see the glory emanating from the throne. The jasper, a white stone, a pure whiteness, white like snow, but focusing on the jasper stone here for a reason I'll get to in just a second. The sardine stone, the sardine stone, some of you know how to pronounce that, I obviously don't. Fiery red, whiteness, redness, and then the green of the emerald rainbow. A rainbow, but with shades of emerald that was magnificent. And he goes on to talk about the thunder and the lightning that was coming from the throne and the voices emanating from the throne. And then he goes on to see the sea of glass. And he talks about the sea of glass that was like unto crystals. Now, I thought the best thing for me to do to, to explain some of this would just be to read you a few snippets from Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, which gives some uh, incredible insight into the significance of what John is seeing. And so here's what Dr. Wilmington wrote, quote, here the jasper, a white stone in the sardine, a fiery red stone may refer to, to God's two basic characteristics, his glory and his grace. These were also the first and last stones among the twelve the Old Testament high priest bore upon his breastplate. In other words, the high priest, when he wore a, a, his breastplate to go into the Holy of Holies, 
he would put 12 stones. The first one was the jasper and the last one was the sardon. And I'm, I'm certain that that is not a coincidence that the first and the last, by the way, who has already told us in this book that he is the first and the last, Jesus Christ, that those two stones just happen to be what John focuses on and emphasizes, and they were on the breastplate. Dr. Wilmington goes on to say, these stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel arranged according to the births of the 12 sons of Jacob. That's Exodus 28, if you want to do that study on your own. Reuben was the first tribe, which name meant, behold, a son. And Benjamin was the last, meaning, quote, son of my right hand. This may be God's way uh, of reminding all creatures throughout all eternity of these two things. Number one, the incarnation of Christ, his humanity, via the jasper stone. Reuben, behold, a son. And number two, the exaltation of Christ, his deity, via the sardine stone, Benjamin's stone. Benjamin meaning son of my right hand. Behold a son. Remember, we just talked about this not too many weeks ago. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Behold a son. His humanity. Son of my right hand. His deity. Now, there's another part of Wilmington's guide where he uh, quotes Dr. Darnold Barnhouse in his commentary on Revelation. And Dr. Barnhouse says some incredible insight regarding this crystal sea. We, we talk about the sea, sometimes the, the crystal sea, sometimes we sing about the crystal sea, but do you know why it's crystal? Do you know what it represents? Listen to what Dr. Barnhouse wrote here. Before the throne, there was a glassy sea like crystal. The concordance immediately takes us to the temple built by Solomon after the model of the tabernacle. This is 1 Kings 7.23, by the way. He made a molten sea, ten cubits of one brim to the other. Now, let me, let me just step back for a second. We are told in the book of Hebrews that when Solomon built the temple and when the tabernacle was built, those things were just earthly models of the heavenly reality. I've built a few models in my day. Most of them were Snap-It models when I was a kid because, you know, I get used to the glue and I get it all over me. And the parts are sticking to my fingers by the time I'm done. I'm just not very, you know, not good with the tech. I built models, and I know the difference between a model airplane that sits on the shelf and a plane that you get in to take you across the ocean. The temple on earth was a model. The tabernacle was a model, but there is a real one in heaven. So when Solomon was building that molten basin, it was to reflect the one that was in heaven. This is what John is seeing with his eyes in his vision. The one that's in heaven. Now why is that significant? Listen, here, Barnhouse says, the priests came for their cleansing Each time before they entered the holy place, they stopped for the cleansing ceremony. So the priests, before they would go into the temple, they'd stop at this 
sea, this molten sea, and they would do their ritual to cleanse themselves before they went into the presence of God. But listen to this, listen. But thank God the laver will be turned to crystal. The day will come when none of the saints will ever need confession. One of the greatest joys in the anticipation of heaven is that the labor is of crystal. I shall never have to go to the Heavenly Father again to tell Him I have sinned. I shall never have to meet that gaze of Christ that caused Peter to go out and weep bitterly. The labor is of crystal only because I and all the saints of the ages will have been made like unto the Lord Jesus Christ. John says, I saw the the, the crystal sea, the laver. It was crystal. There's no cleansing that needs to be done to enter into the presence of God anymore. There's no sins that need to be confessed. The people who are there in the presence of God in that day, completely forgiven. They stand spotless in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Some of you need to meditate on that today. As we say our prayers and confess our sins to the Lord. As we today go boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need to remember that there is a day when that same old besetting sin is besetting us no more. When we are not only freed from the power of sin, but from the very presence of our own sin. It will be gone forever. That's what John is seeing here as he sees this crystal labor. Now his attention turns not from the door of heaven to, and not from heaven's throne, but, but John begins, his, his attention first and foremost goes to the throne. But then as, as everything else starts to come into focus, he realizes the vassals around the throne. God's choice servants that have also been gathered there and also in the presence of God are with their Creator. And we see a number of different groups here. Let's read together verses 4-8. through And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four beasts or living creatures full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had the face of a man and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they had rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Let's talk for a moment about these 24 elders. Much ink has been spilt, much of it wasted trying to figure out who these elders are or more accurately trying to explain away who these elders obviously are or represent. By the description given, these men must be either individuals from the church or representative of the church in heaven. 
Let me give you some reasons why I can say that with confidence. Let me give you four reasons this morning that the 24 elders are either part of the church or representative of the church in heaven. I am not saying there were not 24 literal thrones and 24 literal men. I'm not saying that. I believe that there were 24 literal thrones and 24 literal men. But whether these are just 24 men or are they are representative, certainly they are representative of the whole church, but they are part of the church. How do I know that? How do I know that they are not angels? Well, the first thing I would tell you is that they are distinguished from the angels. They are listed separately from the angels twice in this book. Turn over to chapter 5 for a second and look at verse 11. And I beheld, this is this, we're not going to try to do this all in one week, but this is the same event told in two chapters. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. John says the elders were not the angels. Look at chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. Again, the angels are not the elders and the elders are not the angels. Number two, they cannot represent Israel. They cannot represent Israel. Why is that the case? Because the Old Covenant, the Old Testament tells us that the Old Testament saints, those saints who lived and believed and died before the cross and before the empty tomb will not be resurrected at the rapture. They will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. How do we know that? Well, let me just, we won't take the time to go to Daniel chapter 12 where it is a little more ambiguous, but let me read to you the promise that God makes the nation of Israel and believing Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 12 through 14. God says, therefore prophesy and say unto them. Who are the them here? This is the dream, the vision that Ezekiel is given of the valley of dry bones that are first given flesh, and then brought to life. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, this valley of dry bones, this valley that has been given life, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I am the Lord have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. God says, look, for Israel, their resurrection, the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs, their resurrection will come at the end of the judgment, at the second coming, and God will raise them up and put them in the land which will be ruled and reigned over by King Jesus, Messiah himself. These are not Old Testament saints. And notice also very significantly, these elders are fulfilling three promises that we've talked about over the last several months. Three promises made to the overcomers, specifically overcomers in Smyrna, Sardis, 
and Laodicea. Smyrna, the persecuted church. Sardis, the zombie church, the living dead church. Yet there are true believers even there. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church that will be spit out. Yet even in Laodicea, those he stands at the door and knocks. And those who hear his voice, even in those churches who respond by faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, will be saved. Three promises that are fulfilled. Number one, promise number one, they're wearing the promised crowns. Chapter 2, verse 10. These are Stephanus crowns. These are the crowns of the victors. These are the types of crowns that are promised to believers throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9.25, 2 Timothy 4.8, James 1.12, 1 Peter 5.4, and again, Philadelphia, Revelation 3.11. What does that mean? It means these elders have already been judged by the Lord and they've already been rewarded by the Lord, meaning the judgment of the church has already taken place. The judgment of the Lord has taken place already between Chapter 4, verse 1 and chapter 4, verse 2. By the time John in his vision gets into the Spirit and is transported through time and space into heaven, the judgment has taken place. And now John is appearing after the judgment and these men have received the promised crowns of the victor. Number two, they're wearing the promised white robes promised in chapter 3, verse 5. And they are sitting on the promised thrones. Chapter 3, verse 21 and here's the fourth thing i would tell you about these elders this is in chapter 5 i'll just give you a sneak peek of next week chapter 5 verse 9 and they sang a new song saying thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof for thou was slain and hast redeemed us to god by the blood out of every by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth now time out just for one second because I know there's somebody sitting here and you're saying that's not what my Bible says and I will tell you why that's not what your Bible says because your Bible was based on what is called the critical text it is based on what I firmly believe are the inferior manuscripts and there are manuscripts Egyptian manuscripts that are some of them older that do not say the 24 elders are singing, you have redeemed us, but rather singing, you have redeemed them. And so I know that people want to, I don't have time to get into this. I know this is, I, don't, I just opened the can of worms. I got to shut it real quick again, okay? I don't have time to develop this, but I will tell you, I used to preach out of the ESV. I used, before that, I, I was a youth pastor. I preached out of the NIV for 14 years when I was a youth pastor, okay? I used to be a critical text guy. But this passage of Scripture I was preaching on probably about 15, I'm going to say 15 years ago or so, and I realized the theological difference between those two passages, between those two manuscripts in this one passage. And I thought, you know, I was always told the differences aren't theological and they don't make any difference. That's not true. And I looked at it and I studied it and I studied it. So I started to dig and I started to do my own studies and I found that some of the stuff I had been taught was not, I wasn't lied to on purpose. It wasn't like somebody was trying to trick me, but I, I started to find some things about the critical text that I was told that are not true. And I began to realize these are Egyptian manuscripts of the New Testament. These are, 
this is from the area of the world that, it, that was dominated by Gnosticism. These manuscripts, by the way, contradict each other many, many times. And we're told by your, some of you have a footnote that says the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. That is not true. All right, enough of that. The elders sing a new song about their own redemption. And I do believe 110% that the received text, the authorized version, is the correct manuscript to use when it comes to Revelation. And I would rely on it uh, in all discrepancies compared to the critical text. That's just a little extra for this morning. Now, the... 24 elders lead us into the second group, which is the seven spirits of God. I've already talked about this. I'm not going to re-preach this this morning. But these seven spirits, it should not be capital S. It should be lowercase s because these are not one Holy Spirit showing up as seven spirits. These are the seven angels that appear before the throne of God in chapter 8, verse 2. Most likely these are seven archangels and so these seven angels we are told that stand before the throne revelation chapter 8 verse 2 can be no other group because none other have yet been mentioned than these seven spirits by the way as we said a few weeks ago and i know i said i wasn't going to re-preach that but i'm going to just remind you briefly that they are shown here as seven lampstands and then the interpretation is that they are seven spirits in other words, we don't say there's seven spirits. That means they symbolize the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. There are seven lampstands that God tells us symbolize seven spirits. So these are seven, probably most likely the seven archangels that are before the throne. And then we have this other fascinating group called the four. The King, the King James says beasts. Again, that's not the best translation of the manuscript. The Greek word is zoa, from which we get our English word zoo. But the best translation is living creatures. It means that which has life within it. It doesn't mean beast in the sense of animal, although they are certainly described that way. Listen to what these entities look like again. One is a lion, one a calf. We have also the uh, one who has a face as a man, but it's obviously not a man. And then the fourth was like a flying eagle. Now, there's another group that I'll get to in just a second um, that we'll talk, actually we'll talk about next week. Again, that's that many angels. We just mentioned those, chapter 5, verse 11. John did, John's so fixated on the throne, he doesn't even notice all the angels. <laughs> He's so fixated on the throne, he doesn't even notice the multitude of angels that are there until he starts to look around, and then he goes, wow, there's, I can't even count the angels that are here too. But li listen to these, these four living creatures, these four beasts. These are real entities, but they may be here at the throne room because they may represent four symbolic aspects of Jesus Christ. Again, uh, I was using uh, Wilmington's Guide to the Bible. I didn't think this up myself. But Dr. Wilmington points out that these four beasts just so happen to correspond with the four Gospels. And they most likely symbolize four imp important aspects of Jesus Christ. Number one, the lion, of course, as the Gospel of Matthew represents Christ as king. Christ is the king. Number two, we see the calf, which represents service. This is Christ not in his 
glory, but in, not in his royalty, but in his humility. Mark, the Gospel of Mark is Christ as servant. Then we see, of course, the man. This is obviously Christ's humanity. And what is the Gospel of Luke about? The humanity of Christ. Jesus as Son of God. And then the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We see the deity of Jesus Christ as Son of God. And so we see representing that aspect of Jesus, the eagle. Remember what Isaiah 40, 31 says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. The eagle is several times throughout Scripture symbolic of the believer in Christ. And so we see the beasts standing there highlighted because I believe, as Dr. Wilmington points out, the aspects correlating with the Gospels of the different ministries of Christ. And then we come as we close to heaven's worship. Listen again to these words. We sang them earlier, but listen again to these words. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts who are singing constantly around the throne give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Notice that God is praised here for five things. His holiness, His power, His infinite nature, His worthiness to be praised, and His creation because He is our Creator. Friend, I want to ask you as we close, is that how you are worshiping Jesus today? We cannot yet follow John into heaven, but if you know Jesus, you're going to be there. You should be living in anticipation of the certainty of that day. And we cannot worship with the 24 elders today, right now, but we can worship like the 24 elders and like we will worship Jesus right here and right now. I can give Him glory and honor today. I can be thankful for what He has given me today. I can praise Him today for His holiness his perfection i need to remind myself that his ways are perfect my ways are not his thoughts are so far above mine i get so frustrated god why aren't you doing this why aren't you doing that and god's like i'm seeing the whole picture you're seeing one little fraction through the keyhole i'm seeing it all at once not just everything happening in the world today but everything that is going to happen and has been happening I got it all. I got it covered, DJ. I got it. I need to remind myself that he's holy, that he is all powerful, that he can keep whatever promise that he has made to me. I, it, it's impossible. That's humanly impossible. Yeah, but I am the God man, Jesus says. I can do all that I have said. Every promise of God is yes in me, Jesus says, and I am infinite. I am beyond time and space. I am beyond limitation. And you know why I need to remember that? I'm going to live forever only because He is forever. 
Only because He is forever do I get to live forever. He is worthy of my worship. He is my Creator. He's worthy of my obedience. He is the only person who is going to be able to show me why I'm here. Why am I still here, God? Why am I on this planet? You can go to a counselor. You can read as many books as you want. But it's this book written by your Creator that is going to show you as you study it and as you prayerfully seek God through it what you are here to do and who you are here to be. We pray to Him as our Creator. Only He can show us our purpose in life. Only He can give our life lasting significance. Are you worshiping Him like that today? If not, Start now. Let's stand as we close in prayer. God, we come before you, the ever-present, awesome God. God, we bring our burdens today. We bring our struggles, our questions, our frustrations, our fears. But God, we are reminded by your word that you are transcendent, all-powerful, in control. And so God, may we find our peace and rest in the chaos of this life through the one who is above it all. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you have a need, the altar is open. If you need someone to pray with, you need to just come and pray yourself. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you come now as we sing this hymn? When peace like a
our voices in worship as we sing. And Lord, Jesus, you are my faithful high priest. Only because I can come before you right now, anytime, boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. But God, I thank you and praise you that that day is coming soon and very soon when I will not need the throne of grace in prayer of confession. And I will stand in your presence before your throne in perfect worship you forever and ever. We love and praise you, Jesus. Thank you for the hope that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Hope to see you back tonight at 6.30 for our service. Again, youth at 6 o'clock. You are dismissed. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.